Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So, seeing as Ireland lost the rugby yesterday, <laughs> let's talk about the Olympics. Um, uh, my, I love the Olympics. Who loves the Olympics? Yeah, Olympics, unbelievable. So my first Olympics I remember was Barcelona 92. Anyone remember those Olympics? Okay, not many. Shows the age of our congregation um, and my age. Um, uh, in 1992, something astonishing happened that has been remembered forever in Olympic history. And it was not because someone won the world record, uh, won, the, won the race with the world record. It's because someone finished the race with their dad. Anyone know? Is this guy, Derek Redman. Redmond's career had been blighted by a series of injuries, but he was going to the Olympics with a chance of getting, on, uh, of getting a medal. He was a 400-meter runner, but in the semifinals, his hamstring tore, and he fell to the ground in agony. The medical team came over, and he pushed them all away and started to limp around the track. His dad could no longer stand, watching from the, could no longer stand it watching from the stands, so jumps over the railing, pushes away the stewards who try to stop him, and he puts his arm around his son, and they managed to limp their, well, he managed to limp his way around the track and finish the race. All the other competitors finished, you know, 10 minutes before, whatever, to a standing ovation of 65,000 people. Although Redmond was disqualified and listed on the do not finish list, did not finish list, due to outside assistance, he has received more glory than if he'd won the race with a world record. He epitomized the Olympic spirit. The founder of the modern Olympics said this, the most important, this is when he founded the Olympic, the modern Olympics. The most important thing about the Olympic Games is not the winning, but taking part. The essential thing in life is not conquering, but fighting well. The Apostle Paul is about to die. He's in prison in Rome. And he's right, these are the last words, what Stephen just read are the last words we have written from the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's living during the reign of, uh, of, of Emperor Nero. He's writing during the, the reign of Emperor Nero. And he says in verse 7, just look down there. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. So Paul knows that his time of serving Jesus is over. The next thing for him is an execution of sword. He's going to die. And he is like a father putting his arm around his spiritual son Timothy saying, I want to make sure you get to the end of the race. And he's also saying that, in one sense, to Timothy and to all the church through the years. Sometimes this race is really tough being faithful to Jesus. And I'm putting the letter of 2 Timothy is an arm over the shoulder to say, let me get you there. Now, Paul, in his earlier years, right at the start of his ministry, had famously said this, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul's saying, I'm done here. My race is run. I have testified to the grace of God throughout my ministry. Now, Timothy, the baton is being handed over to you, and I don't want you to be on the did not finish list. I don't want you to be disqualified. I want you to get to the end. Because there's great pressure on Timothy inside and outside the church. So following Jesus won't be easy for Timothy. He's young and all the rest. We've looked at it over the last few weeks. So on our fifth birthday, 
as we think about what it means for us to testify to God's grace in this brilliant city of Dublin and beyond to Ireland and God willing to Europe, we need to make sure we personally finish the race. And so we need to hear the Holy Spirit say to us what Paul said to Timothy. And he gives three things to Timothy about finishing the race. Remember your audience is verse one. Remember the rules is two to five. And remember the prize, six to eight. We all know when you run a race, there's lots of people you can run for. You can run for the crowd. I mean, the glory of the crowd, the standing ovation. And you want to the, stadium, you know, the noise in the stadium to hit the roof. You can run for your coach. Behind every great athlete, there's a great coach. And you can run to please your coach. Or you can run for yourself. The great temptation of every athlete or every person who's ever lived is to boost their own ego through their athletics. You run to please your own self-esteem. Who you run for reveals your motivation. It reveals your heart. So Paul is saying to Timothy, run for the audience of one. Run for God alone. So did you see it there in verse 1? Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who would judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Run for the audience of one. And one of the greatest problems I've encountered in my own life is that I have a too small a view of God and a too big a view of people. You ever encountered that in your life? And it ends up crippling you. We need reminding of the greatness of God. And so Paul says, I want to tell you about our great God, Jesus, and his kingdom. He's a king, and I want to tell you that he's our judge. So run for him. Now, in Revelation chapter 4 to 7, we get this big view of our king and our judge, Jesus. It's a day when all of creation has been put right by Jesus. His kingdom has come perfectly, and his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Christ, the Lamb of God, is seated on the throne. And there's four living creatures, and they fall down in worship because he's so dazzling. And there's 12 elders, and they fall down and start singing because he's so glorious. And there's angels everywhere, it says, and they fall down before his majesty and his power. And then it says, with an uncountable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they all sing. And the song goes like this, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. We will sing a song for all eternity about the greatness of our God. But it's not just us. Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation will one day sing. Because creation has been subjected to the curse because of human rebellion. And so creation isn't as it should be. And it says it's longing for the sons of God, that's you and I, to be revealed. Because when we are liberated, when we are set free, when we receive our new bodies, and we live in the new heavens and the new earth, so creation will be liberated, it says, from its bondage to decay. And the Psalms understood this in the Old Testament. And Psalm 96 and 98 put it like this. The Lord reigns. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that's in them. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. When Jesus comes to put the world right, when Jesus comes to wipe away every tear from every eye, when Jesus comes to make everything sad come untrue, Every cancer to disappear, every heartbreak to go away, every dying young child to be, to, to, be, to be revived. 
when every desire of our heart that is not met in this earth is met ten times and more, when he comes to judge the world in righteousness and truth, not only are we going to sing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb, all of creation will sing because they've been liberated from the curse too. One day every eye is going to see, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, and all creation is going to sing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's judge and king. But you see, when that day happens, every, everyone will be aware of the audience they were living for. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his, of his kingdom, I give you this charge. One day, our hearts, desires, our motivations, who we ran for, why we made the decisions we did, will be revealed. As Paul hands on the baton to Timothy, he says, make sure you're running for the right audience. Only Jesus gets the final verdict on your life. Run for the audience of one. So the question for us, question for you, me, for us as a church is, who are we doing what we're doing for? Why do we get up every day? Who are we trying to please? Whose name are we building? What audience are we running for? It's a great thing for us to think on on our fifth birthday because we need to be very careful not to make sure it's not about us. This is about Jesus. We run for Jesus. He's our judge. All our serving, our participating, our praying, as Tim was saying, our, our forgiving, our talking truth, our dealing with our differences, our loving, our growing, our planning, our praying, our planting churches, our everything, it's for him. Or it's in vain. And it will be revealed to be in vain. This summer, I was greatly inspired by reading the autobiography of George Muller. I cannot recommend it highly enough. A brilliant German Christian who went to Bristol in England in the 19th century uh, to establish homes for orphans. And he did it all through prayer, just dependence of God in prayer. Remarkable story. And in chapter 9, as he's talking about how God saved him and put this on his heart, and as he started to see the work evolve through the prayer, uh, the answers to prayer, he talks about, well, he's established one home for the orphanage. You know, they give them the home and education and, and love and comfort and a future. He says, I want to establish another one. And he talks about through prayer, receiving the donation of a house and funds and, and, and furniture. And it was all happening through prayer. And then he writes this. One point I never prayed about, however, was that the Lord to send me more children. I took it for granted that there'd be plenty of applications. The appointed time came and no applications were being made. This circumstance led me to bow low before my God in prayer and to examine the motives of my heart once more. I could still say that his glory was my chief aim, that others might see it was not in vain thing to trust the living God. Continuing in prayer, I was at last able to say from my heart that I would rejoice in God being glorified in this matter, even if it meant bringing the whole plan to nothing. But it seemed more glorifying for God, and off he goes, and the, and, and the people come in. I want us to be able to say as a church, as we think about expansion and growth and planting other churches, raising leaders, establishing mercy and justice ministries in this city, God willing, I was at last able to say with my whole heart, I would rejoice in God being glorified in this matter, even if it meant the whole plan came to nothing. Because we're just pleasing him. It's not about us. The only way you'll finish the race, Timothy is if you learn to run for one person who gets the final verdict as king and judge over your life. 
Otherwise, you get disqualified. Who are we running for? Who are you running for? Let's be like Mula, back on our knees. Lord, look at my motives and my heart. May I be found to be running for you. But it's not just the audience you need to be aware of to finish the race. It's the rules. Now, the rules that Timothy, uh, Paul is telling Timothy to obey are the rules of being faithful in preaching the Bible when other people don't want to hear it. That's the rule. And he talks about great patience and careful instructions there in verse 2. One of the great challenges of any church is and always has been to communicate the unchanging gospel in a changing world. This is a big value of us, of ours at Christ City Church. Whenever we preach the word or disciple, in any kind of discipleship or city group or whatever it is, we want to make sure we're scratched where people are itching, that it's applicable, that it's answering the questions people are asking, that it's relevant. You know, God was so concerned that his word was relevant that he sent, his word became flesh and turned up in one culture at one time, speaking one language, talking about the kingdom of God in parables to do with farming and fishing that made sense to those of the day. He was able to debate with the high-flying academics like Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and he was able to connect with those who had no education and were ostracized because of their life, like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The gospel was made relevant through Jesus to both of them. God is a God who engages all cultures, all peoples, all generations, all nations, all backgrounds, all histories. He says, come and hear my word. It's relevant. It's life-giving. And so it's important for us that we do that. How do I make God's word, how do we make God's word relevant that we scratch where people are itching? But there's another type of itch, you see, though, that we mustn't ever scratch. And it's an itch that comes from people's selfish Desires. Do you see it there in verse 3? For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The desires here is the desire to stay in control of your own life, to have things your way, to not surrender to God to let your passions and your opinions dictate, not God's. You see, it's one thing to say, let me show you how God's word is relevant to your life. It's a very another thing to say, let me change God's word so it's relevant to your life. So we must be relevant, but never at the cost of being faithful. We must engage with our culture, but never to compromise to the truth. And so notice Paul says, not who gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their ideas, you know, their, their new ideas are, to say what their desires want to hear, their passions. Under a rejection of the truth is always something deeper, a personal passion that someone says, no, I do love God, but I love this more and I wouldn't ever give this up for God. So I'm going to gather around me a great number of teachers to say what I want to hear so that this isn't compromised, you see? That's the heart of any rejection of truth. It's not a mind thing. It's a passion thing. If the Bible really is the word of God, and if, God, if the God of the Bible really is the living God, then we should regularly find that our desires are being challenged and our cultural sensitivities of the moment we live in, in our culture and our time, are being challenged. You should find yourself going, I feel threatened by what God says. Yeah, because he's going, that desire is not a good desire. If you're not... And in the age of the internet, how easy is this? You just gather around yourself a nice bunch of teachers who say what your itching ears want to hear. John Stott put it like this. We have no liberty to invent our message, 
but only to communicate the word which God has spoken and has committed to the church as a sacred trust. I love this. We are to speak what God has spoken. And Timothy warns, uh, Paul warns Timothy about this. And I think we should hear the warning on our fifth birthday. We must make sure that, yes, we're relevant, but never at the compromise of truth. And so I love verse 5. I think verse 5 is a great verse for us on our fifth birthday. But you, CCC, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Don't think about flashy stuff. Just get on and do the basics really really well. Just keep going. Keep being faithful. You may not receive revival in your day. Paul talks in verse 2 in season, out of season. There's times when not much happens in response to the word of God and there's times when lots happens. That's God's choice not ours. So just keep running the race faithfully which means keep sticking with what the scripture says even when people in your culture at your location, at your time in history don't like it. That's what it means to finish the race. The audience is God. The rules, faithful to the scripture when culture says, no, I don't like that bit of scripture. But we have to know there's a price. Paul knows that his time has come. He talks about his departure in verse 6 and 7. He says he's finished the race, but he says there's a crown of righteousness. The emperor Nero may declare him guilty and condemn him to death, but God is going to declare him righteous and grant him eternal life. So there's this great reversal that's going to happen in Paul's life. You're going to be condemned by the authorities in this world, and you're going to be received by the real king, and you're going to be given a prize, and you're going to be welcomed by him. A few years ago, Leanne and I, with the kids, we went to uh, County Clare, had a two-week holiday there, and if you ever go to County Clare, you obviously have to go to the Cliffs of Moher. So we went, and we had a lovely day, uh, a sunny day, and most people just go like 100 meters down and then sort of, you know, take a few pictures and put them on Instagram and come home. But we actually wanted to enjoy the cliffs. So there's this eight-mile round trip that most people, I think, don't do because no one was really doing it when we did it. So we said to the kids, come on, let's go on the, all the way along the top and all the way back. And just marvelous. But, you know, suffice to say, about five or ten minutes in, the kids were not very happy that we had not chosen the normal tourist option of taking a photo and heading home. And so they were grumbling and complaining. And so, I, so Leanne and I often do this. Like, well, If you do the whole walk, you will get an ice cream. Everything changed. No more complaining. Happiness. Three hours of bare and back. We had such a lovely afternoon together because they knew that the prize was an ice cream. It gave them not just a perspective to enjoy, but they actually enjoyed it. And and we had the same in, in Yosemite National Park recently. And I said to Leanne, imagine if heaven motivated us the way ice cream motivates our kids. It's astonishing what they can put up with just for an ice cream. They are so confident that ice cream is coming, their attitude changes, they cope with heat, the tiredness and complaining disappear, they start to enter in because there's a prize. Paul says to Timothy, remember the prize, it's going to be worth it, finish the race. A lady who's greatly helped and inspired me in my thinking about heaven and the prize that we have as Christians is a lady called Johnny Erickson. She was a brilliant uh, athlete, and uh, 17 years old, had a diving accident, became a quadriplegic, and has lived ever since in a wheelchair. And I, want, went, I once went to hear her speak, and she, you know, she says, I can't lift my hands higher than this to praise God. You know, it's so emotionally moving to see this uh, brilliant lady. She's written a number of books about her experience, her depression, her wrestling with God, and how her faith was strengthened. In 2017, at the age of 67, so two years ago, 50 years after her accident, 
She wrote in a blog, I, would really ra- I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. Now, 11 years after her accident in, in 1978, she wrote this book called A Step Further. She first wrote The Testimony of the Story and then Reflections. And she writes her last chapter about heaven. And she says this at one point, life's pleasures were never meant to fill us. They are merely to whet our appetite for what is to come and to cheer and inspire us as we trek through this earth towards heaven. She then says, suffering gets us ready for heaven. How does it get us ready? It makes us want to go there. Broken necks, broken arms, broken homes, broken hearts. These things crush our illusions that the earth can keep its promises. When we come to know that the hope we cherished will never come true, that our dead loved one is gone from this life forever, that we will never be as pretty, popular, successful, or famous as we once imagined. I find that quite offensive, but no. As we, we will never be as pretty, popular, successful, or as famous as we once imagined. It lifts our sights. It moves our eyes from this world, which God knew and knows could never satisfy us anyway, and sets them on the life to come. Heaven becomes our passion. The last paragraph of the book goes like this. When I think of heaven, I think of a time when I'll be welcomed home. I remember when I was on my feet, what a cozy, wonderful feeling it was to come home after hockey practice. How pleasant to hear the familiar clanging of bells against our back door as it swung open. Inside awaited the sights, sounds, and smells of warmth and love. Mum would greet me with a wide, wide smile as she dished out food into big bowls, ready to be set on the table. I'd throw down my sweatsuit and, and hockey stick, bound into the den, and greet Daddy. He'd turn from his desk, take off his glasses, then give me a big hi, and ask me how practice was. For Christians, heaven will be like that. We'll see our old friends and family who have gone on, us before, gone on before us. Our kind Heavenly Father will greet us with open, loving arms. Jesus, our older brother, will be there to welcome us too. We won't feel strange or insecure. We'll feel like we're home. For we will be home. Jesus said it was a place prepared for us. We'll have new bodies and new minds. I myself will be able to run to friends and embrace them for the first time. I'll lift my hands, and she couldn't when I saw her speak, before the hierarchy of heaven, shouting to everyone within earshot, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor, for he freed my soul from the clutches of sin and death, and now he has freed my body as well. Creation will sing with her. The wrongs and injustices of earth we righted. God will measure out our tears, which he kept in his bottle. Not a single one will go unnoticed. He who holds all the reasons in his hands will give us the key that makes sense out of the most senseless suffering. And that, and that's only the beginning. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older order of things has passed away, Revelation 21. And she ends with a picture. She learned to draw with with a pen in her mouth and became a brilliant artist. And she ends with a picture of her wheelchair. It says, for sale. We have a prize. We have a hope. Friends, we live in a day of instant gratification, consumerism, financial prosperity, self-help, social progress. They're being pushed on us every day. And relative to most of history and most of the world, we are very affluent people. 
So we are not forced to think about heaven like Paul was, who's about to die, and like Johnny is with uh, her accident. But if we don't think about heaven and the prize, we, we, it's, our, it's to our peril. We must remember there's a prize to come. This world will never satisfy us. It cannot. We were not made forever to live in this world. But we will one day receive the world that God wants for us. We can run for ourselves without thinking about heaven. Sure, many people do. We can run according to the values given us by society without any critical thought. Sure. Or we can run for the audience of one according to what his word says, knowing there's a great prize for those who stay faithful. And one day, Timothy and those who follow Timothy can hear these wonderful words from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We're five years old. What a great passage for us as we think about the future because our race actually has only just started. And God has called us to testify to his grace in this city. And to do that, we must remember our audience. Jesus is our great judge. We must remember the rules, faithfulness to God's word. And we must remember the prize, meeting Jesus and hearing his words of commendation and receiving a crown. Let me apply this. If you're new to Christ City Church, you've come here for work or you've just found us recently or whatever reason, can I urge you to think about that God has you here for more than just you to have, you know, I guess we, we come to church with what we want and that's great. But God has a bigger vision for the church in the city to bless the city. I say this to people regularly don't just take from CCC and take from the city. Stick around and give and serve and love and bless. If you came for one year, stay for two. If you came for five, stay for ten. If you came for ten years, stay forever. Because you're caught up in what God is doing here, testifying to grace rather than just thinking about your own needs. Of course, if you need to go, it's the dailies last Sunday. We put on a big party for them. Um, we, know we want to bless you and send you, and that's great. We want to be a sending church. But we want, uh, we need you. The city needs you. Don't disqualify yourself because you're new. Join in the run that Jesus has called you to. What about for long-timers? Now, we, we're five years old. We don't have anyone who's a long-timer in our church. But if, that's the point. If you're here over a year, you're a long-timer in CCC. If you're three years or over, you're like a rare jewel. <laughs> I mean that. Churches like ours cannot keep growing and flourishing unless those that have been around for more than a year go, do you know, I actually understand what's going on here. I'm going to make a few life decisions to stay involved, at least for the next season, if not for longer. Dublin is growing so fast. In 2014, it was estimated that the greater Dublin region was 1.8 million. By 2020, the Central Statistics Office, blame Justin if he works for them, if you don't like this statistic, predicts that the Dublin region will reach 2.1 million. Listen to this. By 2031, they predict that the population of Dublin and the greater region will surpass 5 million. Around 40% of people in Ireland come in and out of Dublin every day for work or, or to live here. So over 40% of the country is in Dublin on any given week. All this is to say is that the need is greater than ever and is only going to get greater as more people connect to this city. There's going to be cheaper places to live. There's going to be easier places to live. There's going to be easier places to bring up children. There's a whole host of reasons where you go, yeah, but Dublin's now, but it's not for the future. There was easier options for Timothy. There's always an easier option. Jesus rarely calls us to the easy option, does he? Doesn't he say the road is narrow? 
But there's a big wide road, but the road is narrow. Of course, God's in charge and he, people come and go and we bless. We want to be a sending church. Hallelujah, absolutely. But don't take the easy option on this. Think, God, what are you doing in this city? Could I play my part in testifying to your great? Could I become George Muller or be part of establishing orphan homes? Could I be like Paul? I just want to get the gospel out there and share the message with others. Now, I just want to say one final thing, and I, I, I had it printed there. If you're going to stay in the race, you're going to need friends. It's fascinating that Paul ends his amazing last will and testament to Timothy. In verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me quickly. Then he says, well, why? And then in verse 11, he says, only, only Mark is with me. Only Luke is it. Get Mark. He wants friends. He, he doesn't have any fear facing death, but he's also still a human. And then he says in verse 13, when you come to me, bring the cloak and my scrolls. Paul has no fear, but he's still human. And he knows that he just needs normal support to be a human. And he needs to receive the normal things of friendship and of clothing and, and mental stimulation and scrolls. John Stott puts it like this. Paul did not despise the use of means, nor should we. When our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothing. When our mind is bored, we need books. To admit this is not unspiritual, it's human. We must not deny our humanity or frailty or pretend that we're made of other stuff than dust. That's why city groups are so important. That's why we encourage you to plug in, commit to them, make those friends. It doesn't come quickly. You heard Tim and Grace. You have to be intentional. You need friends. I started with a story from track and field. I'll end with one. In 2018, there's an amazingly famous moment that I'm sure you've seen at some point. It went, it went viral on social media. A guy called um, Johnny Brownlee was 400 meters away from winning. Oh, I'm going to cry. I can't get through that. I watched the social media. I was in bits in my study. Johnny Brownlee was 400 meters from finishing the Mexican uh, triathlon and winning. And um, he uh, became very ill due to heat exhaustion on the verge of collapse. He was in first place. In second place was his brother, who's actually typically better than him. And uh, his brother saw that his, his younger brother was in trouble. And so forfeited his chance to zoom past him and win the race. Put his arm around his brother and helped his brother get across the line. And uh, another South African athlete went and won the race. And you know, fair play to him, so he should have done. Um, but Alistair actually pushed Johnny over the line so he'd be second. You see that? He says it was the South African, him, uh, his brother... It's an amazing picture of the Christian life. It's what Paul's doing to Timothy. It's what Paul's saying, I need cloak, I need friends, I need, I need just help at the last minute. Can you get me over the line? Christ City Church should be a place where we go, I've got some friends that when I'm dying on the track, they put their arm around me and they get me there and they say, get to the end. Stay faithful to Jesus when it's tough. Keep testifying to grace. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duties of your ministry. Stay sober-minded. Just keep going. That's what the church should be, could be, maybe is. Let's help each other get to the end. We need each other. We can't do it alone. Let's bring as many others with us who lived in the city of Dublin while we lived in the city of Dublin and they end up receiving a crown of righteousness for eternity because we ran faithfully. Imagine in heaven and you meet them and, you, and they say, the only reason I'm here is because you guys committed to doing something in Dublin and you were... What a moment. Do you know all those sacrifices in this life will be gone? We help some others get there.
Do you want to do that? I do. Do you want to stand? We're going to sing. We're going to respond. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for this amazing letter. We thank you for the arm across the shoulder that says, I want to get you limping to the end of the track. We thank you for five years, but it's just the beginning. And Jesus, this is not about us. This is about you in view of your coming, of your kingdom, of your judgment. We want to run for you. We want to stay faithful to what you've told us in the scriptures. And we want to remember there's a great prize for enduring and keeping going. Lord, make us the church which sees, uh, seeks the peace and prosperity of this city, where we're like George Muller, establishing homes for the orphans, and we're like the Apostle Paul, getting the message of Jesus out there so people can have eternal salvation. Lord, help us. We need your Holy Spirit to keep inspiring us and guiding us. In your name, amen.